I'm Joel Chasnoff, and this is Inside Israel. Good evening, everyone. Today is January 16th, 2024. And I'm coming to you from uh, Marble Falls, Texas, where it is a balmy 13 degrees outside. As a native Chicagoan, I can handle it, but everyone down here, trust me, is freaking out. And this is actually going to be the last episode that I bring to you from the U.S. next week. This will continue, but I will be in Israel bringing you sort of a more personal perspective because I'm going to be there. This will continue. I need it. This is great therapy for me. I'm hoping you want it as well, but I will be back next week from the Holy Land. And tonight is going to be a very personal episode for reasons that some of you may know. The rest of you, you'll soon find out why. The title of tonight's episode is My Soul Has Come Home. We're going to look at three stories about homecomings. And the first one begins in my hometown of Ra'anana in Israel. And for all of you who reached out to me with emails and texts and Facebook messages asking if we were okay, I really appreciate it. If you didn't reach out, don't worry, I don't hold it against you. But I do live in Ra'anana. My wife and four kids are there. And as you may have heard, there was a terrorist attack that happened in Ra'anana. It is a very eerie feeling to look at the news and to see a bus stop that you yourself have stood at countless times, dozens, a hundred, uh, to see stores that you recognize, to see the streets and the graphic images of blood and tennis shoes and all the other smatterings around and, and to know that you've walked past that and that is part of your daily life and to be away from it all and know that your wife and kids are there. And what I want to do right now in our first story is bring you a little bit of insight into what happened because the news, even the Times of Israel, is not bringing the full story. And I don't blame them, but there's some details here that only locals know and I want to tell you how exactly this happened, how it unfolded, and what it's like for everyone there right now. So this happened, this was, in, was initiated at a car wash in Ra'anana. Most gas stations in Israel have a car wash attached to it. And the standard procedure at all of these gas stations is that your car goes through the car wash, and then a team of Arab workers do the drying on the outside. If you pay extra, they'll do the cleaning on the inside. But it's always a team of Arab workers overseen by a Jewish-Israeli boss. That's just how it is. And in this particular case, a woman had her car washed. And once it came through the car wash, two brothers who worked at the gas station uh, threw her out of the car and stabbed her and then took the car and went on this spree, driving into bus stops around town. They made it, if I saw the map, they made it quite far within the town, to different points within the town, and ramming into people. Uh, last I heard, it were 17 injured, one critically, one person killed. The critically injured one is a 16-year-old who goes to the local high school, Rimon, that we all know. And he's in a, uh, he or she, I'm not even sure the name. I don't know that they've released the name of this patient, but is in a coma um, in, like I said, in critical condition. And what's important to know about these brothers is that they were from the West Bank working illegally in Israel. So they do not have permission to work in Israel. So you might be wondering, how do they get into Israel? Why are they working there if they don't have permission? The owner 
of the gas station. The Jewish Israeli owner arranged for them to work under the radar because it is much cheaper. It's cheaper to pay Arab labor than it is to pay Jewish Israeli labor. And I hate to say this, but this is a common practice, bringing in workers illegally from the West Bank, paying them cash under the table on the black market. And I'm pleased to say that the owner of this gas station was arrested. And as far as I'm concerned, he should be tried and found guilty of obviously not first degree murder, but some sort of lesser charge. But he is complicit in this. When you bring in illegal workers from the West Bank and they commit murder and other crimes within the country, I think you should be held accountable. I would imagine that most of you agree with me as well. These two brothers were captured and taken alive. And I think this is a good thing too, because we can get intelligence from them, find out what other operations might be being planned right now. It does seem like this was very personal, somewhat of an isolated incident. These brothers said that ever since the war in Gaza, they decided they were going to become martyrs. That was the extent of what the Shin Bet, the internal security service has released about their interrogation so far. But the important thing here that I want you to take away with is that they were not supposed to be in Israel, but it was an Israeli Jew who arranged for them to be there, found a way for them to get a ride into Israel, paid them under the table. Uh, it's his responsibility. So this is at a gas station, a gas station that I myself have filled up uh, my car at numerous times. It's right near all. It's called the Izor uh, Most cities have two areas, the living residential area and the industrial zone. And this was right in the industrial zone near the big shopping mall, near the Clay Zemmer guitar store, across the street from the Amit Bakery, which my wife has been working with. They've donated literally thousands of baked goods to soldiers all around the country. So we are in this area all the time. And as it turns out, my wife and daughter were at a cafe about a block away from where this happened, literally a minute and a half before it happened. Um, they had to pick up my son from school. They called him and said, do you want to stay longer to play with friends or get picked up now? He said, get picked up now. And so they left in a minute and a half later. Uh, this occurred around one, two in the afternoon, Israel time. And so when I woke up yesterday, I have a habit of not checking the news on my phone right away. I try to do some peaceful morning routines before I jump into the news. But then I did get a phone call from my family saying, have you heard? And of course, when you say, have you, when you hear, have you heard, you freak out a little bit, but have you heard? And they told me the whole story. And I got to admit, it was very, very hard for me when I heard this, that it was in my hometown. And I got my wife on the phone and I said to her, is this maybe the time when we think about leaving? You know, I'm, I'm all for being part of the Israeli community, the Israeli society. But when you reach to a point where you are afraid of sending your son to the grocery store down the street because of a car ramming, when you are afraid yourself to fill up your car with gas at a gas station, is that a life anymore? Is that still a country you want to be living in? And I really thought that my wife, Dorit, who's a native Israeli, would say, mm, I, I can see what you mean. We probably have to think about it. But lo and behold, I was shocked. She was absolutely adamant that she wants to stay. And she explained why. She said that as soon as it happened, she was flooded with text messages and phone calls 
from all the people around Israel that she's been helping, soldiers that she'd arranged clothing and food and mattresses for, serving in the north and serving near the Gaza Strip that she had met, who'd come to our apartment to pick up stuff, were calling her and concerned about her and saying, can I do anything for you? Uh, families that she's hosted for Shabbat dinners while I've been away, bringing, they've been relocated from the south or the north and she's had them over. They were reaching out to her and she, she just expressed the outpouring of love and concern. And this, paired with the fact that she feels so useful right now. She also explained how this whole war has brought out a side of her that had been dormant for years. Back when she was in college at Bar Ilan University, she was head of the Zionist club and used to work for political change in Israel. And then she became a mother and family life and sort of left that part of activism, the part of doing things for Israel, for the better of the country. But now it's awakened that in her. And she says she feels more essential than ever. She's flourishing. And her exact words were, I feel that my soul has come home. And I was surprised to hear this, but at the same time, I was happy for her to hear it. And it gave a little bit of closure to me that this is not a debate we're going to be having, but for the time being, we are, uh, we are staying there. But I, I wanted to share that reaction with you. And I must say, most Israelis I've talked to, I haven't talked to many since yesterday, but the ones I have, they tend to see this as a one-off situation. They are not afraid of sending their kids to school. Uh, it, they are not afraid to fill up with gas or take their kids to activities. It's, we talk a lot about Israeli resilience, but you are seeing it firsthand in Ra'anana right now. It, really is life as usual. And it's stunning how Israelis are able to do it, but it really is a character trait that I think uh, in many ways is different from you know what I see in other countries around the world, certainly in the US, but is very unique and special to Israelis. So that is the first story of homecoming. I guess it might be called homestaying because Dorit has absolutely no desire to leave. And she really feels like she, the fullest expression of who she is is happening right now. The second story of homecomings is related to the hostages. For the first time in Israel right now, we are starting to see a split in public opinion as to how to handle the hostage situation. There's been a lot of unity until now that as terrible as the hostage situation is, we need to fight this war. We need to dismantle Hamas once and for all. And if we don't, then we're still gonna be living under threat. But right now, you're starting to see a little bit of a gap. There are still those who believe that we need to fight this war to the end and that nothing should happen, no deal at all, until Hamas is defeated and we've taken away their ability to threaten us. And by the way, I think there were over 40 rockets fired at the south of Israel today. So Hamas is still active and firing. But on the other side, you are starting to see people who are saying that this war had two goals. Goal number one was to defeat Hamas, and goal number two was to bring home the hostages, and that we are now over 100 days in, and we have not accomplished either of those goals, and therefore this war is a failure. Now, I personally don't agree that the war is a failure, and frankly, my opinion is that 100 days is not nearly enough to dismantle Hamas. In fact, the reports are, that are coming out right now are saying that this war is going to go into 2025. 
So that's all of 2024 as well as into 2025. And I can absolutely see why. We've pretty much taken care of northern Gaza. We have a large sense of control in central Gaza and Khan Yunus, but southern Gaza still remains. And that's why there were 40 rockets fired at southern Israel. On the one hand, it's good that these rockets were not going to Tel Aviv. And the reason they're not going to Tel Aviv is because we've pushed Hamas down south into southern Gaza. But they are still firing at us from southern Gaza. And southern Gaza is going to be the most complicated aspect of the war for a few reasons. Number one, there's a border with Egypt in the Rafah crossing that Israel wants to take control of but which Hamas is able to use to smuggle weaponry and food and everything else they need through that Rafah crossing. A lot of times Egypt does not want this. It's not like Egypt is complicit, but nevertheless, Hamas is able to. Actually, Egypt flooded some of these tunnels a few years ago as a way of trying to stop the illegal smuggling going on by Hamas. But the fact that we have the Rafah crossing in southern Gaza that we need to deal with and we want to take control of is going to make this very complicated. The second aspect is that we have this entire tunnel network and Hamas is in the tunnels in southern Gaza. Reports came out today with an update on the tunnel situation, and it was found that there are 350 miles of tunnels underneath Gaza with almost 6,000 openings, shafts that lead into these tunnels. Now, keep in mind, Gaza is only 140 miles long. So you're talking about a tunnel network that is so intricate, it's actually twice the size, the length of Gaza, going every which way. And the way it's constructed, someone can enter from the north through a shaft and work their way through different tunnels and end up in southern Gaza. That's why we've destroyed so many in the north, but all these tunnels still remain in the south. Earlier, the IDF had estimated that there might have been about 200 miles of tunnels. They're now saying it's closer to 350 miles. And once again, with close to 6,000 entrances where Hamas can enter the tunnel network. Uh, these are outdoors. These are in children's bedrooms, literally under their beds. They're in universities, hospitals, parks, playgrounds, amusement parks. Enti the entire... Gaza territory is is uh, has tunnels underneath it. And my own daughter, her job in the army was to map these tunnels, to be part of the team mapping the tunnels. She was on the base Raim. If you look up the base Raim, it was the base that was hardest hit on October 7th. The Havdil, thankfully for me, my daughter was out of the army at that time. But she used to tell us that there is a second Gaza under Gaza. Those were her exact words. And we are finding that out right now. So that's the second reason the Southern campaign, this new campaign in the South is going to be difficult. We have the Rafah crossing, we have the tunnel network, and we also have close to 2 million Gazas, Gazans now living all in Southern Gaza. Whereas you had 2 million Gazans before living throughout Gaza, now they're almost exclusively in the South. And so, you now have a civilian population. And someone just corrected me, 25 miles long. Yes, it's 25 miles long. Uh, 140, I believe, square miles is the correct assessment of the square mileage of 
Gaza. But those are the three reasons that it's going to be extremely complicated to fight this final stage of the war. The Rafah crossing, the tunnel at work, and the two million Gazans who are now down there, that Israel, is, has, they have nowhere to go. Egypt does not want to take them in. Other countries do not want to take them in. So now Israel is going to have to deal with taking out Hamas, defeating Hamas amidst a population of two million civilians. It sounds unbearably impossible. It's going to require a long effort, which is why we're saying it's going to go into 2025. It's going to require a lot more what we call surgical strikes, small teams going in as opposed to bombing from the air just to prevent casualties. I should point out that according to the rules of war, you are allowed to bomb hospitals, schools, homes, if the enemy is using them for their own military purposes. And in this case, Hamas is, their whole strategy is to embed within the civilian population. But this is why the war in the South is going to be so complicated in Southern Gaza. And that's also why I think that to say that this war has failed after a hundred days uh, is incorrect. I actually see it as quite the opposite. That after 100 days, the fact that we've killed probably, they're estimating about 8,000 Hamas militants. We've also taken out, like I said, neutralized the north for the most part, most of the center within 100 days. Uh, sadly, we have lost at this point 190 Israeli soldiers. It's terrible, but it's also, from a statistical perspective, I think much lower than a lot of people expected from a ground operation. If you remember in the summer of 2014, I believe we lost 70 Israeli soldiers and that was a few weeks operation in Southern Gaza. So to, to think that we've been there over a hundred days and we're at 190, it's obviously horrible, but it's lower than we expected. So personally, Joel's opinion is that to say that this is a failure because we haven't rescued the hostages and because we haven't defeated Hamas after 100 days. I, I don't agree with that assessment. At the same time, we have to acknowledge that these hostages now have been there for over three months, over 100 days. What are we to do about that? I think we've realized at this point that any deal from this point forward is going to require Israel to end the war and withdraw its troops. Hamas is not going to accept anything less. Now, who knows? It could be that there, there are supposedly discussions going on with Qatar and there are some back channel talks about a possible deal, but I don't see Hamas agreeing to anything that does not call for an end, a complete sensation to the hostilities, or at minimum, a very long ceasefire, not the week we had last time, but a month, several months. And this would only give Hamas a chance to regroup. And let's not be naive. Hamas has said that what happened on October 7th, they intend to do again and again and again, infinitely into the future. So any ceasefire we have, I mean, we had a ceasefire until October 7th. It was broken by them. And any ceasefire we have would eventually be used by them just to regroup and attack us anew. So politically, there are really two camps at this point. It was sort of shocking to hear this, but Benny Gans and Eisenkot, the two sort of guest joiners, members of the war cabinet, have said that Israel now needs to do more to focus on the hostages, including putting some sort of deal together. On the other side, you have Netanyahu and Galant. Galant is the minister of defense saying no military pressure is the only way. You know, on the one hand, I trust Gans and Eisenkot. They were both former 
generals, uh, chiefs of staff. They know what they're talking about. If they're saying that it's time to talk about some sort of deal, I trust them. But at the same time, I personally don't understand how we could have any deal that leaves Hamas at all intact. Now, we have to take into account something else, which is that there are political motivations that might be beginning to open up as well. Uh, we have to be honest. Uh, the longer the war goes on, the better it is for Netanyahu. As soon as the war ends, there's a good chance he will be out of power. So he does have a motivation to try to keep the war going. And now that Gallant, uh, sorry, now that Benny Gans is seen as a really viable candidate for the next prime minister, many people are simply assuming he'll be the next prime minister. You can see how he might have some political motivations as well. And he's realizing that he needs to bring the hostage question into the mix and that if he can be the one who frees the hostages, this will do something for him politically. Now, I'm only speculating here, but with politicians, you can never rule out what personal and political motivations they have. Uh, interestingly enough, Merav Mechieli came out this week saying that we need, it is time to end the war and focus on some sort of deal that returns the hostages. Now, just to give you a recap, we've talked about Merav Mechieli before. I am not a fan of her. She is the former head of the Labor Party. In the last elections, she made the decision not to combine with Blue and White and Yesh Atid as sort of, and merits into one sort of left-center liberal bloc. She decided that Labor would run alone and lo and behold, uh, she got very few seats in the Knesset. The left completely fell apart. Meretz did not get any seats at all. And she announced recently that she was stepping down as head of labor. So politically, she's not necessarily a voice that carries a lot of weight. But she did come out this week. And there are a few other politicians who are saying it's time to actually end the war and talk about some sort of deal. And in Israeli society itself, you're starting to see this talked about among people. Although I don't know Aside from people directly to the, related to the hostages, I personally do not know many people who are saying end the war and do whatever's possible to bring the hostages home. So what are Israelis talking about? How are they going about this? Well, this hundred, this hundred days of hostages in captivity has been very meaningful to Israelis, very painful. There was a 24-hour vigil uh, on the hundredth day. 24 hours, people stood in the rain and the cold. It was a chilly night in Tel Aviv, drizzling, and they were in Hostage Square all night. Benny Gans uh, was there as well, as was Eisenkot. They joined. They built a mock tunnel. You can go online and see this mock tunnel that was built in Hostage Square to try to capture the sense of what it's like to be held in these tunnels, the sense of claustrophobia and the absolute hell that the hostages are going through. Businesses, many, many of the biggest businesses in Israel closed for 100 minutes on the 100th day. Simply a strike in honor of remembering the hostages and their 100th days of being there. And this was nationwide, uh, most notably part of the BIG, the big shopping mall chain. And stores were all familiar with, uh, were had closed their doors for, for 100 minutes. So the country is very much in tune with the fact that we're now at the 100 day mark and it's becoming uh, extremely painful ex especially now that we're learning more and more about what the hostages endured and uh it's been revealed that more and more hostages have been murdered in captivity just today we got the news that two other residents of Be'eri the kibbutz Be'eri who are being held hostage 
were murdered by Hamas and their bodies are being held by Hamas as part of the collateral they're trying to build up for any potential deal. So the hostage question is, it's becoming, it's becoming, it's always been heavy, but it's becoming even heavier right now. And uh, I still believe that we're not going to see any sort of deal in the near future, especially because, as I said, it would require Israel to pull out the troops and that would leave Hamas intact. Uh, but at the same time, more and more Israelis are really beginning to consider what do we do? Because we all remember Gilad Shalit, who was captured in 2006 and ended up staying for five years in captivity in Gaza. And someone just, uh, Alicia just put the note in the chat, which I really appreciate you putting, that this 30 is Kfir Bibas's first birthday. Uh, yeah, Kfir Bibas, he's, I mean, you know, the Bibas family, they're sort of the, I guess, the, the face of the hostages, those adorable redheaded children who are known as the Jinjim, the redheads in Israel. And uh, I think we also thought, perhaps mistakenly, that their photo would rally the world around our cause when you see these children. Um, I don't know that it happened to the extent we assumed it did. Um, but yes, thank you for sharing that, Alicia, that this, uh, this Thursday is his first birthday. And, and by the way, on this so story, I want to also add that the head of Israel's internal security service, uh, the head of the Shin Bet, it's been widely speculated that he has now decided to step down as soon as the war is over because of failings um, in internal security uh, leading in intelligence leading up to October 7th. And also the, the chief of staff before Halevi took over also said that he needs to be investigated as well, which I think is a very bold move for the former chief of staff saying that I am troubled by what I might have done differently to prevent October 7th. I need to be investigated and the army needs to be investigated while I was in control, not just while the current chief of staff, Alevi, was in control. So you're seeing a lot more politicians and leaders take responsibility. So here's our final story of my of homecoming and the idea of my soul has finally come home. As I mentioned at the top of this broadcast, I'm going to Israel uh, next week. I'm flying next Tuesday, the 23rd, landing on the 24th. And I'm going to be completely honest with you. Um, I'm anxious about it. Today is my final day here in Texas. Tomorrow I leave for the last six days of my comedy and book tour. So I'm sort of leaving home here. And it's really hitting me that I'm going back to Israel. and. Uh, I won't lie. I'm sort of ashamed to say this, but it's a bit of an uneasy feeling. On the one hand, I definitely want to go back and I miss people and I want to be part of the country. But at the same time, uh, it's really starting to sink in what I'm going home to. I'm going home to a war zone. I'm going home to a city that had a terrorist attack that uh, I myself live in. Uh, today, I, I literally have not eaten a thing uh, all day. I've been in this state of uh, anxiety and angst, the, the likes of which I haven't experienced in a very long time. I actually didn't look at my phone the entire day. Uh, I avoided looking at the phone because I didn't want to see any WhatsApp messages that might have be been coming in uh, from my family, which is a horrible way to deal with this, sticking your head in the sand. But for whatever reason, I just, as it's hitting me that I'm going back, I needed a little bit of that distance and and separation. And I, I want to share a little bit, some of my fears with you as I prepare to go back. Um, I'm afraid of being taken hostage myself. I'm afraid of uh, filling up my car at a gas station and being abducted and thrown into a car and being taken hostage. I, I don't know if that sounds completely irrational, but 
that went through my mind. I am afraid of my kids being taken hostage. I have a kid who rides the bus to Tel Aviv every single day. Uh, she goes to performing arts school and has a long walk from the bus to her school. Um, you know, after what happened yesterday in Ra'anana, there's sort of a sense that are we safe anywhere? And so, of course, the brain manufactures all these extreme images. But, you know, these are some of the scenarios that are popping into my mind. Um, I think it finally hit me. It, or it's finally starting to hit me what happened on October 7th. I think that until today, I've been able to be this sort of ambassador here in North America, where I could speak about Israel and do this session with you every week and bring a little laughter to people, but also have conversations and help make sense of what Israelis are going through. And I was able to do it from a distance. And I was in this little bubble where I could be part of Israel, but also not be fully part of Israel. And and now that I'm going back, I won't lie to you. It is making me a little bit anxious. And I definitely want to go, but there's a part of me that um, wants to stay. Uh, because it's a little more clean for the head to be here. So that's the third story of uh, homecoming that uh, I want to share with you. I can't say I'm proud of all of that, but I figured I might as well be honest and tell you what I'm thinking. Some other news stories. This week, you guys sent in some amazing questions, a lot of questions, and I'm loving it. I'm loving that you're sending in the questions by email. It gives me a chance to research them and prepare ahead of time. Before we get to your questions, I'm going to just share a little, a few pieces of news and uh, give you my take on them. So you may have seen pro-Palestinian protesters marched in New York yesterday out of, of all places, the Sloan Kettering Hospital, uh, where they treat people with cancer. And their whole, their whole shtick, if you want to call it that, is that Sloan Kettering has the audacity to work with hospitals in Israel as they research cancer treatments and cancer medications. And so they were marching outside of Sloan Kettering. And we have some pictures of children with cancer at Sloan Kettering looking outside the window and hearing these pro-Palestinian protesters shouting at them that they are complicit and they are part of the genocide, et cetera, et cetera. This is all in the context of other uh, protests where pro-Palestinian protesters have been blocking roads into airports blocking JFK, other airports around the country, bridges in San Francisco, Boston. My personal take is keep it coming. I really have no problem with this, and I'll tell you why. The more you see big masses of protesters blocking roads that everyone uses, screaming at cancer hospitals with their faces covered and wearing kafias, the more it's going to make Americans realize that this population is the one to be frightened of. No one is looking at them. Very few people, I think, are looking at them and saying, good job. They're standing up for the freedom fighters and rights. They're going so far out of bounds and disrupting life to the point where they're screaming at children who have cancer in a cancer hospital that uh, I think it actually is good for the Israeli cause to have such craziness and such over-the-line the behavior. And I think we're seeing this in Europe as well. Yes, you can make a lot out of the story that we're seeing hundreds of thousands protesting in London. But London is a city of millions. And we can't forget about all the people who are not protesting in London. And you have to wonder, what are they thinking? What are they see thinking seeing 100,000 with, again, in kafias, with their faces covered, marching, chanting from the river to the sea? 
this is a scary image. This is not a society that you want your kids to be running around in. You don't feel your kids are safe there when you see this kind of action. And I think the more it happens, the more it's going to turn the general population against the pro-Palestinian protesters. And I want to remind you of a stat that I brought up two weeks ago, that in the U.S., 80% of people, 80% of the population, if they're just given the choice, is Israel or Hamas, 80% say Israel. And I mentioned this last week, we have a record high, 24% of Americans believe that Israel is not getting enough support from the United States. That's the highest percentage of Americans who believe this ever. So we cannot be swayed only by what we're seeing. Of course, the media is going to focus on the uh, the outliers and sort of the extreme uh, situations, but I think there is a lot of support for Israel in the general population. We can't forget that as well. All right, another big piece of news, the Shin Bet. I've mentioned them a few times. That's the internal security service, sort of akin to uh, the FBI, the CIA is like the Mossad, overseas spy networks, the Shin Bet is within Israel, internal security. And the Shin Bet is extremely worried about what's happening in the West Bank. As I've mentioned before, support for Hamas is up 300% in the West Bank. But what the Shin Bet is really worried about are the Jews in the West Bank, that they are worried about actions on the far right. The the brutality that they are enacting upon Palestinians in the West Bank, whether it's smashing their stores, torching their cars, just pulling people out and abusing them. Um, and the Shin Bet is extremely worried about a new intifada, an uprising in the West Bank. And there are a few reasons to think this. First of all, like I said, the support for Hamas, which is up 300% since October 7th. But second of all, the economic situation is becoming ever more dire in the West Bank. We had had 50,000. I mentioned this at the top of the show about the two brothers who were coming into the West Bank illegally to work at this car wash. Uh, at this point, uh, you know, we had had 50,000 West Bank Palestinians coming into Israel to work every day. And I saw them myself. As I told you, in Ra'anana, where I live, we have on our block alone, at least four apartment buildings which are undergoing renovations to strengthen them against the potential earthquake, earthquake which is just around the corner, as if there weren't enough going on in Israel. We now have an earthquake to worry about as well. And all these Arab workers had been coming in from the West Bank, 50,000 a day. And right now, Israel has ruled no more Arab workers coming in. And this is creating a very dire economic situation. So between the right the extreme right-wing hilltop uh, Jews in the West Bank and the economic situation and the support for Hamas at, you know, like I said, 300% increase, there is worried, worry right now about a new intifada in the West Bank. And they are calling on Netanyahu and his government to clamp down on these right-wing extremists in the West Bank. And I could not agree more. For too long, we have let them run nilly-willy and what it's really done is uh, it's providing a threat, not just to the Palestinians inside the West Bank, but it's providing a threat to us Jewish Israelis and Arab Israelis within Israel itself. We need separation. We need a clear border that we can defend. And when we have all these uh, extreme West Bank settlers in the West Bank, it makes it impossible for us to keep Israel proper safe. I have to mention The Hague. As you know, Israel was brought to trial by, of all countries, South Africa, a beacon of ethics and morality to the rest of the world. 
Uh, I think Israel made a very good case for why it is not genocide. The problem, though, is that this is not beyond a reasonable doubt. This is not like an American criminal case. All you need is plausibility of genocide. If it's even plausible, given what South Africa is presenting, that Israel is committing genocide, then Israel can be found, what is it, guilty or guilty of a war crime? I'm not sure what the exact word is. Now, just to reassure you, at the end of the day, nothing would happen. So even if Israel is found to be in the wrong by the Hague, there's no enforcement there. There's no teeth. It would stain Israel's reputation in the world. But frankly, I don't know uh, many places where it would be more stained than it is. And certainly, you know, we have Germany, we have Great Britain, we have Israel, uh, we have United States supporting Israel and saying that these claims are baseless. So the countries that Israel needs to maintain strong ties with still uh, are supporting Israel. But still, you don't you don't want it to happen. But unfortunately, plausibility is the only bar. And uh, one of the main ways that Israel can be found plausibly uh, in breach, plausibly pursuing genocide, is because of statements uh, that our politicians have made. Uh, statements about relocating, you know, wiping out Gaza. We need to level Gaza. We need to treat the Gazans like we need to treat this enemy like Amalek, the biblical Amalek that we need to wipe out. And I think it was clear to Israelis that Netanyahu was referring to Hamas when he spoke about Amalek and not all of Gazans. But no one is going to parse that in the Hague trial and in the international community. But Israel for itself sent a great team of lawyers and their own de facto judge, Aharon Barak, who is respected around the world. Um, and uh, again, though, the, the problem is it's only plausibility. It's not beyond a reasonable doubt. Last piece of news I want to bring up is that the head, the chief of staff of the IDF, Halevi, has said that Israel needs to, needs to plan for a day after, that we have made significant gains in Gaza, but without a plan for the day after, all of these gains could be wiped out. And as happened recently, uh, there was supposed to be a meeting in Israel about the day after between Netanyahu, Gallant, the head of the Mossad, and the uh, Minister of Defense. And Netanyahu canceled that meeting because he didn't want the Minister of Defense meeting with the head of the Mossad and the intelligence uh, for political reasons, his own paranoias. And that was, I think, an example of Netanyahu putting, the uh, the, uh, putting his own political gains before the needs of the country. But we are now hearing two very high up people, again, the head of the Shin Bet saying that we need to be worried about Jewish extremists in the West Bank, and Halevi, the chief of staff, saying that we it is time to think of a day after plan, um, or else our gains will be wiped out. So these are within Israel uh, leadership calling for these kind of changes. Now let's get on to your questions. We had some great questions coming in from all over the country, and I'm really happy to hear that. I will certainly do my best to to address them. Our first question is from Lynn. She wrote, I feel that the political crisis last year and the judicial reform emboldened our enemy. And that, that is one of the factors that they attacked on October 7th. Do I agree? Well, I do agree. And leaders within the army and the Mossad were saying that all of the judicial reform, all of the conflict politically within Israel, the pitting of the left versus the right, the Ashkenazi versus the Sephardic, the religious versus the non-religious, that it 
showed our enemy that we were not unified and prevented it and presented an opportune time to attack. And the head of the chief of staff and the head of the Mossad were warning that it was going to embolden our enemies and that we could expect an attack if this continued. And lo and behold, it did happen. Now, I think what Hamas was not expecting was how quickly Israel would be unified, that on October 8th, all of these organizations that were organizing to protest the government week after week, 100,000 people in Tel Aviv for eight months straight, that all the organizations leading that would, on a dime, turn all of their efforts into saving the country and helping each other, whether it was organizing equipment for soldiers, evacuating residents from the north and the south, tech companies using AI, developing apps that very week to use AI capabilities to identify people who are at the Nova party and figure out whether they'd actually been held, taken hostage or were still in Israel. The country reunited on October 8th. I do not think Hamas expected this. And I think Hezbollah was surprised by this. Hezbollah is attacking from the north, but not nearly as hard as they could be. It's sort of a, a lot of token gestures. And I, I hate to say that because this week we had a mother and son killed when an anti-tank missile was fired at their house in the north of Israel. And so I hate to use the word token gestures, but this is not a full out attack by Hezbollah. And I think one of the reasons why not is because they saw how unified Israel was and how quickly we came together and that all of the disunity we were feeling did not come to fruition on October 8th. Remember, on October 6th, we were still talking about a civil war, Milchemet Achim, a civil war inside Israel. And on October 8th, the country became united. And just from a personal point of view, uh, I just want to share that my wife, Dorit, who's been doing a lot of work, she's been doing a lot of work with religious teenagers and religious kids in their their young 20s. We're talking ultra-Orthodox with, you know, Payas and the Black Hats, Haredi, who are volunteering, organizing to bring equipment to families and soldiers. And I think it's a show of just how much unity there still is in Israeli society. And it's one of the reasons that Dorit is so committed to staying there. Our second question is from Mark. Oh, what a great question, Mark. Mark asks, why doesn't Israel make more of an effort to publicize the atrocities of October 7th and the illegal actions of Hamas? We're talking about embedding within the civilian population, using child uh, soldiers, children, uh, as part of the effort. This week, we had an incident where a three-year-old Gazan girl was sent out, was picked up and put out of a tunnel and pushed toward a platoon of IDF soldiers. She was barefoot, three years old, and the hope was that the soldiers would go near her and that they could be ambushed by Hamas, three-year-old girl. This unit took, went anyway, and they picked up the girl. They bandaged her feet, which were badly cut and injured, and they brought her to a Red Cross station. I'm not sure exactly the logistics, but they were able to bring her to Red Cross representatives to hopefully reunite her with her parents so that she could be taken care of. But the point is, if we're talking about illegal actions, yes, this is how low they will stoop. We found suicide belts. Last week, I talked about this, that we have found suicide belts in Gaza that are outfitted for children as young as eight, nine, 10 years old. 
And so Mark's question is, why doesn't Israel publicize this more, both the actions of October 7th and the illegal actions of Hamas? And I actually think the question is incorrect, Mark. I think that Israel is publicizing the atrocities of October 7th. And I think that we have made very clear what Hamas is doing illegally. I don't think we can blame Israel here. I think this is a matter of people simply, well, let's, like I said, 80% of Americans already side with Israel. So let's talk about the other 20%. It's unbelievable, but there's nothing you could say to the pro-Palestinian supporters that would make them say, ah, you're right, this is illegal, Hamas has gone too far. As far as they're concerned, everything Hamas does is legitimate. You don't just see this among uneducated people. We had social workers at Columbia University, social workers in the students in the social work school a few weeks ago, rallying around Hamas. And what they were saying is that these actions Hamas took, including flying in on hang gliders and cutting off the heads of babies. This is part of the resistance in their mind. Everything is legitimate. So Mark, there is absolutely nothing Israel could point to that this segment of Hamas and Gazan supporters would say, ah, that is too far. There's no new information we could give them that would change their minds. What do I think it is? It's anti-Semitism. If this were any other country, but not the Jewish country, I think the reaction would be different. These people were not standing up for Gaza while Hamas was repressing them. And make no mistake, Hamas was repressing them before October 7th. They're standing up for Gaza now because Israel is involved. So I actually think Israel has done, I won't say they've done an incredible job. It could probably be better, but we have made a very good case for how Hamas is behaving illegally and the atrocities of October 7th for sure. But there's some people who simply see this as good move. This is what Hamas needs to do as the liberators for the Gazans and the Palestinian people. And you are never going to change their mind. Rick asked a great question. Why is there no pressure on Russia to enact a ceasefire on Ukraine? There's been <laughs> thousands of deaths, displacement and suffering. How come no one's asking for a ceasefire there? I think we can all answer that question because it's Israel. Uh, in 2023, the United Nations came out. They admonished Israel 14 times during 2023, and they admonished the rest of the world eight times. So just about twice as much. One little country, Israel. Uh, the rules are different. When you're talking about Israel, the rules don't apply. You could also ask Rick, how come uh, Russia wasn't brought to trial in The Hague for crimes against humanity, genocide? Because it's not Israel. This will only happen to Israel. And yes, once again, it's anti-Semitism. It's what happens when it's the Jewish state. And it's a complete double standard. I wish I had a better answer for you, Rick. I wish I had something more uplifting. I don't. Ellen wants to ask, why is there all this pressure on Israel, but not on Hamas to end the conflict? And this is a great question. And I do also want to mention that American politicians, Blinken and others have said, uh, there was a great moment, I think a few weeks ago during a press conference where Blinken said, hey, hey, how come you're all asking about Hamas? Uh, sorry, 
where Blinken said, hey, how come you're all asking about Israel? Why are none of you asking questions about Hamas and what Hamas needs to do to end this conflict? American politicians are calling this hypocrisy out too. I think on the one hand, Israel is seen as the democracy, as the main actor, the one who can actually behave according to a set of norms. And so a lot of people are in the media are pinning it on Israel to behave a certain way. Uh, but I, I agree with you, Ellen. Uh, it, it's it's again, how many times are we going to say this? Absolutely hypocritical that the world is calling on Israel to do this when we still have 140 of our own being held hostage. Can you imagine if France had 100, there were 140 French people, including women, kids, teenagers being held hostage by another country? No one, no one would be putting pressure on France to end whatever actions it was taking to free their hostages. But when it's Israel, it's different. And I've told the story a few times, but I'm reminded to tell it again about the Christian Israeli from Haifa who went on a speaking tour to colleges in the US recently to talk about how Israel, as he's an Arab, and he was actually trying to make the case for Israel on college campuses. And his big takeaway when he came back to Israel was that Jews are not seen as people the way other people are. Jewish lives do not matter on college campuses. I'm just talking about the college campus population, never mind others, but Jewish life isn't seen the same way. So that is why you're seeing all this hypocrisy, whether it's the UN and Russia, whether it's the Hague, or whether it's the pressure uh, only on Israel. Betty wrote in in response to what I said last week about rabbis. And I gotta say, Betty was not the only one. Many of you wrote in, uh, just to remind you, Last week, I said that I really think that American rabbis need to step it up more, that they're not doing enough. I'm looking for some sort of Abraham Joshua Heschel type of leadership, mass action, you know, praying with my feet, the way Heschel marched with Martin Luther King during the civil rights era. And he said, I'm praying with my feet. We need that kind of action. And a few of you, many of you wrote in talking about what your rabbis are doing. Some of you are rabbis who wrote in. I wouldn't say you were angry, but you were just trying to correct me and show me that there is stuff being done. And one of the, one of the names that came up a lot is Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove uh, in New York City. And he did a really bold maneuver on the Shabbat after October 7th. You may have heard this story. He told everyone, it was Friday night, and he said, I believe it was Friday night. It could have been Saturday morning, but let's say it was Friday night. He told everyone, yes, it's Shabbat, but I'm going to ask you to pull out your cell phone right now. And he told them where they could go on their phones and make a donation to Israel. And I believe he raised a million dollars, perhaps close to $2 million that very night from the Bema. And I, I want to make clear, Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove is the outlier. Uh, he is an outlier. I, As far as I'm concerned, Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove should be the Pope of the Jewish people. I feel it would do a lot of benefit for us if we had one figurehead who could kind of lead the Jews and speak for the Jewish movement and the Jewish energy and where we want to put our enthusiasm. And I would nominate uh, El Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove over anyone else. I think he's absolutely incredible. And yes, there are rabbis out there doing things. And someone also pointed out that last Friday there was a rally at the UN. I'm also going to stick by what I said. And I think that one rally and a march on Washington now, what, two months ago, as wonderful it was, it's not enough. And we have 100, like I said, 140 of our own being held captive. This cannot be a rally here, a rally there. There needs to be mass movement. I don't know what it means. Does it mean strikes? 
Can you imagine if all Jews in America who were concerned about this issue refused to go to work for a certain day or number of days? Can you imagine if we did the rally on Washington once every two weeks or in our home communities had these huge rallies or if we bombarded our elected officials daily, multiple times a day, letting them know that the hostage issue is one we care about and that we support Israel. I feel there needs to be more visible mass action. Thank you to all, for all of you who wrote in, correcting me and telling me about the rabbis. I do want to hear it. Karen, our final question for the day. Oh, this is a great question. How come when Israel finds weapons and other ammunition in Gaza, they always said that they destroy it? And she asked, why don't we just use it for our own uses? Why don't we use those weapons? And that's a great question. I can't say I 100% know the answer to that. I do know that a lot of the weapons they're finding are, again, like these sort of suicide belts that have been outfitted with explosives, which we obviously are not going to use. They are rocket launchers uh, and other types of things that we would not bring into Israel that are specifically heavy and big and would be used there against us. There, a lot of the rifles are Kalachnikov rifles. And just to sort of get really nitty gritty inside baseball here, in the Israeli army, we use the M16, which is American made, I believe in Connecticut uh, by the Colt Manufacturing Company. Uh, but we use the M16. That is the standard issue rifle. The Kalachnikov is a Russian made weapon. We do not use the Kalachnikov in Israel, except for some very elite units. It has to do with the speed of loading the magazine and how many bullets come out at a time and stuff beyond my pay grade. But I'm not necessarily sure that these are weapons we would use. But also, Karen, it could be that there are some of these weapons that we are bringing back for our own use. I don't know, but that's a great question. And that's one that I'm going to research a little bit more. A few questions I'm going to review right here from the chat. The Ra'anana terrorists are detained. Will they only become pawns for hostages for prisoners swap? Look, the main reason we want these hostages, uh, the main reason we want these Ra'anana terrorists is for the intel, for the intelligence. We're not collecting terrorists for an eventual hostage swap. Will they become pawns? I mean, look, Hamas is saying that they will only release the hostages when we pull all of our forces out of Gaza and we release all prisoners, all ALL prisoners in Israeli jails. So yes, they theoretically would be part of a deal. Now, I think we're already realizing how much of a mistake that was to release so many prisoners uh, for Gilad Shalit. Um, and by the way, Gilad Shalit has been meeting with families of hostages just to tell them what his experience was like and how he endured and try to bring a little bit of hope to him. But I commend him for doing that. Gilad Shalit, if you don't know, is a tank soldier kidnapped in 2006, held for five years in Gaza. Uh, but yeah, that's what Hamas is saying. Hamas says they all want all prisoners released. And I'll remind you that Sinwar, the mastermind behind this whole October 7th operation, was sitting in an Israeli jail and he was released in 2011 exchange for Gilad Shalit. So I think Israel needs to be very careful about how they release and who they release in the future. And by the way, one of the goals of this war, yes, to defeat Hamas, yes, to bring the hostages home, but also one goal is to capture Sinwar and other leadership. And as I mentioned last week, we know exactly where Sinwar is, but he has surrounded himself with Israeli hostages because he knows that that prevents us from attacking him the way we would. By the way, there are also speakings within Israel of, uh, what's the word? It's not exodus. When you send the leadership away, when you take the leadership and 
is it extricate? Someone type in the chat. I'm losing my English vocabulary. But there is talk of taking Hamas leadership in Gaza and exiling them to Qatar and other countries as part of any deal with Hamas, that we would not kill them, but simply exile them, which would mean they can run the show from somewhere else. Make no mistake about that. Uh, someone mentioned, okay, so Elliot Cosgrove, 18 million raised by Rabbi Elliot Cosgrove. Holy smoke. And someone else wrote that I think the Toronto Jewish community is doing this, rallying, writing letters, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I'm going to add something else the Toronto community is doing. Um, they are hosting families. You know, a lot of families in Israel, 200,000 Israelis have been relocated. A lot of them are within Israel. But as I've been going around my tour, I've been finding out that a lot of North American cities have been taking in Israeli families. Usually it's a family where it's the mother and the kids and the father is back fighting in the reserves. But Houston, I was just there a few weeks ago. They have 15 families. Toronto has, I think, close to 20 families. I'm going to be in Toronto on February 28th. So if you're there, doing, I'm doing an event for the Heschel Day School. And part of the work I'm going to be doing there is meeting with some of these Israeli families to talk with them in Hebrew, bring a little bit of uh, home community back to them. Um, but yes, many communities around the U.S. are doing this. And please don't take me the wrong way. I'm not saying that no one's doing anything. I just I think we need some of this massive show of praying with my feet support uh, on behalf of the uh, hostages who are still there and on behalf of Israel. We're at an hour, and this is where I'm going to call it off right now. So once again, I want to say toda rabah to everyone for tuning in today. If you want to get the links to these live broadcasts, you know where to do it, on joelchaznoff.com. I just put the link right there. Go to joelchaznoff.com slash contact, or at the footer of any page, you'll see a little box for Hebrew is Magic. This is where you, uh, my weekly new newsletter about Hebrew words fill it out and you'll get the links to these conversations. I also put the links to the podcast. This is now a podcast on Apple and on Spotify. Up there in the chat is where you can find that. Someone asked me for my wife's email address. Yes, I'm gonna send that. Here is why I'm doing that because Dorit is working very hard with army units uh, specifically to raise funds, bring in specialized equipment. So if you want to donate money and you want to make sure it goes exactly to where, not, I don't want to say make sure, most of the money we're raising is going to where it needs to go, wherever you're giving. But in this case, Dorit uses the money 100% for these special projects that she's funding and working with. So go ahead and reach out to her. And I got to be honest with you, I think it's Dorit.admoni, but I'm going to put Dorit Admoni as well. I never email her, so it might be that there's no period in there. So <laughs> maybe write to both and uh, and she will get back to you. Oh yeah, Amy, thank you so much. People can post a review on the podcast. Yeah, that would be great. It helps get the word of this out there. So next week, I will be coming to you from Israel. If you're wondering if this is going to stop when I go to Israel, no, absolutely not. I've gotten so much out of sharing Israel with you and I hope that you do as well. I will see you Next week from Israel, link will go out this Thursday. We have a great word coming to you in Hebrew is magic. So if you're not signed up, do. Once again, Beshalom, Todaraba. Always a pleasure to spend some time with you. Erevto. Inside Israel is produced by 188th Crybaby Productions, Incorporated. Episodes are recorded online before a live audience. To get the links to future recordings, sign up at joelchaznoff.com slash podcast. If you have questions, comments, or to give feedback, and I know with all those Jewish listeners out there, you have feedback, 
Drop us a note at joel at joelchaznoff.com. To learn more about me, my comedy and books, and to sign up for my newsletter, Hebrew is Magic, you can do that at joelchaznoff.com. Thanks for listening.